Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 37 through 41. You can find it on page um, 910, 911 there in the Pew Bibles. Uh, if, if by chance you're here and you don't have a pew bi- or you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. And so right there in the pews, the blue and white Bibles, those are yours. We, we'd love for you to have one. You know, throughout my time in ministry, I've had a, many conversations with people regarding the practical working of the Word and, and the Spirit in their lives. Sometimes it looks like people coming to me deeply grieved by their sin and they're questioning whether or not they're truly Christians. Others point to some event or some events in their lives, some deeply emotional experience, some resolute commitment, some some point in their lives where their minds were filled with the truth of God. Some spoke in brokenness and, and desperation. Because they felt so callous towards the Word of God. And, and though they, they knew that they, the, the Holy Spirit is everywhere present, they felt far, far from Him. Others boasted in their experiences, spiritual experiences, miraculous things, tongues, dreams, visions, signs, wonders, uh, deeply emotional or physical encounters, or, or maybe they boasted in their knowledge of God, maybe they boasted in their morality, maybe they boasted in their discipline or their outward obedience. You know, in many ways, my job as a pastor comes down to identifying and cultivating and nourishing and harvesting the work of the Spirit and the Word. been true for every generation. Every generation pastors have done that because every generation people still struggle to identify the distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit and the Word in our lives. And that's true both in the spiritually dry times and also in the times of revival and great awakening. When you think about Jonathan Edwards, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy, Jonathan Edwards, he's one of the most profound, probably most important pastor and theologian in the history of America. He experienced both extremes. He experienced dry spiritual times when it seemed like no matter what he said or or what he tried to do, it seemed like there was little or no fruit coming from the Word of God and the Spirit. People were either professing or functional deists, really, when it came down to it, believing in a creator God that was basically uninvolved in his creation. But there were also times of plenty, times of abundance. Edwards, you see, was also a key figure in the first great awakening in New England where thousands of people came to Christ. But God was clearly moving. And those who professed faith in Christ, those who were Christians, were growing in their knowledge, in their love for the Lord, in their love for each other, in their devotion, in their piety. It was an amazing time in the life of the church. They were growing in boldness to evangelize, and the church was growing over and over again. And many people during this time, they boasted of extraordinary emotional and physical experiences. Tears, 
trembling, groans, loud outcries, agonies of the body, fainting spells, and what later came to be called holy laughter. And some of them, though very zealous, were not worshiping God in truth. Some of them were still sinning greatly. Others fell into deep, faith-ruining error. You see, though the Spirit and the Word had come in power during that first great awakening, not everyone who made professions of faith in Christ were truly converted. And Edwards, though he was very much a proponent of the awakening and all that was happening there, spent much of his ministry seeking to clarify, seeking to to help people to understand the true work of the Spirit and the Word from error. I mean, some of his greatest works, charity and its fruits, the religious affections, they were devoted to that issue. They were responses, clarifications, attempts to help people to discern truth from error. And by the way, guys, I'd highly recommend them to you. I actually read both of them this week, very quickly. I mean, religious affections, just by the way, is just in my top five of all time, so it's worth a read. But one of his earlier works, The Distinguishing Mark of the Spirit of God, Edwards gave nine negative signs, nine indications that are really no proof of the genuine work of the Spirit of God. And then from 1 John chapter 4, he gave five distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And these five marks from 1 John chapter 4 were, first of all, a growing esteem for Christ as he has clearly been revealed in Scripture, right? Not not just the, the Christ that you want him to be, but as he is truly in Scripture. You love him, you value him, you, you worship and adore him. Two, a fighting against the kingdom of Satan and the encouragement and establishment of sin, meaning You're standing in opposition to the work of Satan. You're standing in opposition. You're fighting hard against sin. You're encouraging others around you to grow in faith and purity and holiness before God. Third, he said a greater regard for Scripture. Do you love the Word of God more? Do you revere it? Do you cherish it? Do you take delight in it? Four, a growing conviction in truth that leads you away from error. Not just knowing truth, but being convicted about truth that leads you in truth and away from error. And then number five, an ever-deepening love for God and for men. These are the distinguishing marks of the Spirit of God that Edwards identified in 1 John chapter 4. If you're interested in reading that, it's only 47 pages. You can actually read that this afternoon. And If you want a copy, I I can give you a Word doc of it. Well, in in the end of Acts chapter 2, it also provides us with more distinguishing marks of the Word and the Spirit. These are evidences of true faith. And so if you've ever asked yourself, you know, how does one become a Christian or continue on in the Christian faith? Or, Or how can I know for sure whether or not I am a Christian? Or how can I grow and show the world that I am a Christian? Well, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47 will tell us how. It provides us with a number of distinguishing marks of the Word and the Spirit. And so this morning, we're just going to deal with the first half of this passage. We're going to deal with verses 37 through 41. And what we're going to see from this text 
is that receiving the word in the power of the Spirit results in conviction, repentance, and a commitment to walk in obedience. Receiving the word in the power of the Spirit results in conviction, repentance, and a commitment to walk in obedience. And so let's turn our hearts now to the text, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the first distinguishing mark of the word and the spirit that we see from this text is a deep conviction of sin. This is not a popular idea today. Especially not in American Christianity. We don't like the idea that all of us have rebelled against a holy God. We like to think of ourselves as basically good. That our sin really isn't that bad. And though we'll acknowledge the fact that we're sinners, that we have committed a moral error against God, we kind of think to ourselves, you know, really, it's not all that bad. We don't like that the Bible speaks of hell. A place of eternal condemnation for all of those who have continued in their sin. Because again, our sin's not that bad, so why would God punish us eternally for it? We don't like the fact that Christ is Lord. That He, as both our Creator and our Redeemer, has the right and authority to tell us what we are supposed to do and who we are supposed to be. Now, we want a God who promises to make our lives better, to help us to feel better about ourselves. A God who gives us what we want when we want it to make our lives more comfortable. A God who gives evidence that He is serving us, that He has our backs. And when we find ourselves in those times where where everything has kind of spun outside of our control, then and only then we want God to kind of step in and take the wheel and clean up our mess. We want a God that will free us from the negative feelings and consequences of our sin without freeing us from our dearly loved sin itself. But verse 37 shows us a very different response to the Word of God. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It says, when they heard this. Now what they heard was not that sound of a mighty rushing wind. It was not the the divided tongues as of fire that had come to rest upon Christ's followers. It was not even the fact that these Christ followers were now professing the mighty works of God in different languages that they did not know. What they heard was the message that Peter had proclaimed from verses 14 through 36. That the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is a sign 
that the day of the Lord is at hand. A day of, of coming judgment in which God will forever condemn the unrighteous, but will restore His people to Himself. And who are those people that He will restore to Himself? Those whom He's poured out the Holy Spirit on. And it was clear to them all that they had not received Him. So they asked, what do we do? He says they needed to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. But the Lord is more than God the Father because the death and resurrection of Jesus, which happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, is proof that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Call upon Him and be saved. And what's more than that, He also says you all are guilty of crucifying Him. He has died and raised and He is now ascended into heaven. He is the one who is pouring out all of this that you are seeing and hearing and you crucified Him. You see, friends, what they heard was the Word of God. What they heard was the fulfillment of Scripture. What they heard was the Gospel message. But friends, not everybody who heard it, heard it. You see, Bible scholars estimate that there were between 55 and 200,000 people there celebrating Pentecost. 55 to 200,000. But we know from verse 41, as numerous and amazing as it was, only about 3,000 received the word and were baptized into the church. I mean, 3,000, it's an amazing number. But three out of 55 to 200,000, it changes things, doesn't it? Only 3,000 truly heard the message. And friends, let that be a warning to you. It it takes more than reading. It takes more than hearing the message being proclaimed. The message being spoken. The Holy Spirit has to give us ears to truly hear and believe the message. And for these 3,000 souls, we know that the Holy Spirit did caused them to hear, to receive the Word of God, because it says that when these 3,000 souls heard the Word of God, they were cut to the heart. I mean, we get the idea of what that means, right? It's an intense pain. It's a, a stabbing. They were pierced to the heart. They were acutely distressed. They were conscious stricken. They were deeply convicted for their sin. Suddenly, they came to the realization that they were guilty of the death of the Christ, the one whom they had been praying, their people had been praying for centuries, would come and deliver them. And they crucified him. Friends, you know that feeling that you get, you know, when, you, when you've accidentally deleted that paper that you spent so long working on, that, that sickening feeling in this, the pit of your stomach, right? Multiply that times a million. Could you imagine what it would be like to know that your actions, whether intentional or not, resulted in the death of an innocent? Maybe like a car accident. Well, friends, this text says that you have. Verse 36 tells us that we have all crucified Jesus, the Lord and Christ. There was no one more innocent and undeserving of death. We're sorry. 
the child is gone. There is no one more worthy of your love and adoration. We're sorry, but your actions have killed your mother. There was no one more worthy of greater worth, of greater power, of greater authority. We're sorry, but you killed the king. And it says that they were cut to the heart. And friends, keep this in mind. Peter is not saying this to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, to the baby killers of this world, though it would certainly include them. He's saying this to the religious, to the devout, to those who were waiting on the promise to those who had made great sacrifices to come and to offer their first fruits to God. But he says to them, you killed the Lord in Christ. You killed him. And so out of desperation, they cry out, what, what shall we do? I mean, is there any hope for us? We have just killed the Christ. We have just killed the Lord, the one that we had prayed would come and deliver us. We are guilty of his death. Is there any hope for us? Friends, do you hear the gravity? Do you hear the urgency? Do you hear the magnitude of their desperation? They were pleading for any hope. That is the depth and the sincerity of their conviction of sin. You know, so often today, we, we don't experience this level of remorse. Not that the measure of your sadness is the measure of your salvation, but too often we have a low view of sin, we have a low view of God, we have a low view of Christ, and we have high views of ourselves. And friends, that can be a very, very deadly combination. It can actually inoculate you to the gospel. Too often, the sorrow that we experience over our sin has more to do with us than it does with God. I'm sorry for my pain, my feelings, my reputation, how my sin affects my relationships and my life. And so we can come to Christ because we want to escape the feelings of shame over our sin, but in a very self-centered way. Right, Because my pride has been hurt. Or because I want self-esteem. I want self-assurance. But I am at the center focus of my shame and sorrow. And I want relief. Or maybe we come to Christ because our sin has hurt others. And we want Christ to come in and fix what we've broken. Not so much to do with God, or sin's not directly God, but, but I've hurt someone else and I want him to fix it. But again, it's so that my life can be better than what I've made it. Or maybe we come to Christ because we want to avoid the consequences of our sin. Well, I don't want to go to hell. I remember saying that as a 10-year-old. I don't want to go to jail. 
I don't want to have to make retribution for my sin. And so again, I come to Christ so that He can be my advocate in order to absolve me of my responsibility or to at least reduce the consequences that I know that my sin really deserves. But friends, do you realize that true conviction of sin affirms the effects and consequences of our sin wholeheartedly? It agrees with the decision that we're guilty and is actually willing to accept the consequences? Now Christ graciously does all of these things. But to look at it in terms of my relief, my restoration, my redemption, or my personal improvement is to miss the point. Because our sin is first and foremost against God. It is a personal affront to Him. We have rejected God. We have spurned His holy name. We have taken all of the good and precious gifts that He has given to us and we have twisted them. We have formed them into images that we worship instead of or rather than Him. We ignore Him. We do not trust Him. We do not take Him at His word, even when He pours out all of this that we see and hear. And even when we recognize our sin, so often we make it more about us than about Him. But it's as David said in Psalm 51, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah murdered, against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Again, and it's not that he didn't sin against Uriah. It's not that he didn't sin against Bathsheba. It's not that he didn't sin against his family. It's not that he didn't sin against his nation. But in comparison to the gravity the magnitude, the urgency of his sin, it was as if he sinned against God and God only. But so often we don't see our sin as evil. We act as though what we've done is, you know, we've kind of spilt a little water on God. Oh, sorry, God, did I do that? Did you get a little water on you? Here, here's a napkin. Why don't you just dab that off? It'll be dry in no time. I just go back to my life now. I think I'm going to go watch a movie. You want me to make you some popcorn? Think about it this way, maybe. <clears throat> what, what, would, what would happen if you took crude oil and you, you threw it all over the Mona Lisa and then you set it on fire? I mean, what would the reaction, what would the response be to that? Could you say to yourself, well, you know, it's okay because no one, no one got hurt. Does that make it right? Does that make it right to destroy that? And that's a, that's a painting, a priceless painting, but a painting nonetheless. Friends, when we sin, that's in effect what we do to the name of God. Though we can't really hurt God. I mean, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, but we can't really hurt God does that give us any right to? 
I mean, if it's wrong for us to burn the Mona Lisa, how wrong is it for us to try to burn God? Because that's a low view of God. It's a low view of our sin. And it's a low view of Christ. Christ didn't, didn't really die for my sin. I mean, he was already dead. And if he did really die for my sin, I mean, he's already dead. He's rose again. And so, you know, what does it really matter whether or not I sin a little bit more? Well, friends, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Friends, do you realize that your sin killed Jesus? That Jesus died and rose again, not so that you can continue to walk in your former manner of life, so that you might walk in the newness of life. When we sin, it's like we're nailing Him to the cross all over again. Friends, you can't have a high view of yourself, and a high view of God, a high view of sin, and a high view of Christ. Something will inevitably give. Either you will continue to live for yourself, maybe giving lip service to God, giving lip service to your sin and your need for Christ, but you will not truly experience conviction of sin. Or, or you will be cut to the heart, fully acknowledging that God has made him both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. And in desperation, we will call out, What shall we do? That's the effect that the Word and Spirit does in us when we are truly confronted by our sin. Well, in verses 38 and 39, Peter answers that question with the second distinguishing mark of the Word and Spirit. And that second mark is repentance and faith. Verse 38 Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells them to repent. Now, not only do we confuse conviction of sin, making it almost non-existent or very man-centered rather than Godward, but we also confuse repentance and faith. You see, I don't really care how Protestant you say you are. We've got all have a little bit of Catholic in us. We all seek to twist and turn repentance into confession and penance. You know, we recognize that we've sinned against God and we feel bad. And so what we do is we pray to God and we tell Him our sins and we ask Him to forgive us. Or maybe you go and you talk to your pastor or, or maybe you go and you talk to the guys in your life transformation group, your accountability group, and you confess your sins to them and then they tell you what you, behavior you need to do to make up for your sin. And so that's what you do. After that, you step out of the proverbial confession booth and you go on your way trying to be a better person. You go out and you say your, your, your Hail Marys or, or do whatever good deed, external deed you need to do in order to alleviate your conscience for a little while until after 
after time has passed, you've kind of grown dull to it again, and then boom, there you are right back in it. Temptation comes, and you dive in, and now the cycle of confession and penance and return to sin starts all over again. Some of you guys in LTG know exactly what I'm talking about. And it seems like week after week after week after week after week after week, you have the same conversation. Well, guys, I, I looked at porn again. Brother, do you see how this is a sin? Do you see how this affects your relationship with, with God, with others, your family? Do you see how this distorts your view of, of women and of sex? Do you know what desires and longings are, are within you that led you to, to go and look at porn again? Brother, do you see Christ's sacrifice for sin and just what it cost? Do you understand what He has done and what He has given to make you a new man in Christ and to redeem you from this distorted view of sex? Brother, how can we as your LTG help you to love Jesus more than porn and to see it for what it is? How can we encourage you with the truth and help you to set hedges for your eyes? And so then you pray that you will see sin for what it is, that you will love Jesus more than porn, and you go about your way, and then next week, you hit the repeat button. Now, some of this goes back, again, to not truly feeling conviction over sin. But some of it has to do with either a mystical or, or on the extreme other end, a, a very external behavioral understanding of repentance and faith. The mystic basically thinks that if I just confess it, it's wiped clean. It's all gone. It's like poof. It's gone. I'm a clean slate. On the other hand, though, you've got the, the external behavioral understanding where you just focus on outward steps that you need to take to try to put yourself back in the right with God. Right? I just wipe it clean, just saying a few words, or i got to beat myself back into a right relationship with God. But that's not what repentance means. Now kids, you may remember this question from the children's catechism. What does it mean to repent? Nobody's bold enough. Sometimes you get kids that are just like, I know, you know. To be sorry for sin and to hate and reject it because it is displeasing to God. What does it mean to repent? It's to be sorry for sin and to hate and reject it because it is displeasing to God. Friends, repentance starts at the heart level. Right? Not just do you feel sorry for your sin because of the guilt of, of how you feel or how it hurts others or that it comes with negative consequences, but repentance is a hatred of sin. Friends, if you still love your sin, you can confess and you can do penance five times a day, every day until Jesus comes back and you will still keep going back. You may be sorry, but you keep going back because you love your sin. 
And even if you say, you know what, I I don't love my sin per se, right? I don't love yelling at my kids. I don't think that that's fun. I don't think that that's enjoyable. What you love is the desire that leads you to yell at your kids. You love peace. You love order. You love quiet. You love comfort. You love the fact that God has placed you in authority and you're the one in charge. So you yelled your kids. But repentance is a hatred of those desires and an active, daily rejection of those desires because they are displeasing to God. Again, this goes back to our misunderstanding of conviction because our repentance is Godward. It's a turning away from ourselves, away from our desires, away from our wants, our longings, our hopes, our plans, our thoughts, our beliefs to God in faith, trusting that what He has done for us and what He calls us to as His redeemed people is better, that it is good, that it is right, that it is wise, that it is loving, that it is best because it comes from God. I'm not really missing out on anything. And so repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Repentance is turning away from sin. Faith is turning to God. And both of them are active. Both of them are directional. And friends, both of them are gifts from the Lord. You see, repentance is every bit as much a gift to you as faith is. Even the Holy Spirit. And quite honestly, if we could grasp that, I wonder how much holier we would be as a people. We see the Holy Spirit as a gift because He helps me to gain access to God and He assures me that I'm okay. I'm for that. I'm for the idea of faith because faith gains me something that's kind of clear. I have a a relationship with God, and and it's one that I, in some sense, have a choice of, right? Or, or, Or I look at it in terms of the fact that I can define faith the way I want to define it. Not that we can, but we think that we can. And so I'm, I'm for faith, but repentance? Repentance requires humility. Repentance requires submission. Repentance requires brokenness. Repentance makes me sorrowful. Repentance means that I have to go in a direction than what I I want to go in. Whereas, quote I saw from Rosaria Butterfield yesterday, which you should look up her life, Rosaria Butterfield. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with my sin. But friends, it's still a gift. The doctor who cuts you open to remove cancer from your lungs does so to give you the gift of extended life. God gives you the gift of repentance so that you can have eternal life in an intimate relationship with Him. And friends, let's keep this in mind also. Peter is saying this to an utterly hopeless people who killed the Lord and Christ. And so don't think to yourself that repentance is somehow going to make up for the death of Christ. This is not an oops, my bad. 
Instead, it is full acknowledgement of guilt and an active desire to turn away from my sinful ways to walk in God's ways and to do that with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength. Now, the next part of this verse can be confusing. It has led a number of people into error in thinking about relationships. It says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The error comes when we try to read this chronologically. First, you must repent. And then you must be baptized in the name of Christ. And then after you do both of those things, then you receive the forgiveness of sin. And after you receive the forgiveness of sin, then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, there are people that that believe that. In other words, baptism along with repentance is necessary for salvation. But is that the case? Is baptism necessary for salvation? Well, the answer is no. You see, in the book of Acts alone, There are three different occurrences in in chapter 8, in chapter 9, chapter 10, right? Two big ones, conversion of Saul and Cornelius, right? Those are big ones, in which people clearly received the Holy Spirit prior to being baptized. And that ordering we see throughout the New Testament is repent, believe, and as a first, first order response of our faith for the salvation that we have already received is to be baptized. And so that little preposition there, for the forgiveness of sin, should not be understood as a purpose statement, that you are baptized for the purpose of forgiveness, but as a reason. Be baptized on the basis of or because of the forgiveness of your sins. In addition, let's keep in mind too that the Holy Spirit has not been sitting around idly up to this point. It was the Holy Spirit that was making all of that noise in verses 1 through 4. It was the Holy Spirit that was filling Peter to preach the message. It was the Holy Spirit who enabled the 3,000 to hear and respond to the call of God that came from the Holy Spirit there in verse 39, everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself. So the Holy Spirit has clearly been at work and is not just sitting waiting for you to do all of these things before you receive Him. You must repent and believe to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism there is a command. Just like the word repent is a command. If you have repented and believed, if you have received the forgiveness of your sin, you are to be baptized. Right? You understand that in the New Testament, there was only one believer ever in the entirety of the New Testament that did not explicitly obey this command to be baptized. And the only reason he did not obey that command to be baptized is because he was hanging on a cross next to Jesus. Everyone else was baptized based upon their profession of faith. Now, there's nothing magical about the rite of baptism, right? It doesn't actually wash away your sins, but it is an outward display, a symbol that you have clearly called upon the name of the Lord and that God has saved you. 
Baptism is a public profession of your identity with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's like a wedding ring or a marriage license is to the marriage. It is a visible symbol of your love and commitment to Christ. We are baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a demonstration of our recognition of His authority and His power to grant the blessing of the Spirit and to save people from coming judgment through the forgiveness of their sins by His blood. Like in a marriage, when a wife takes the name of her husband, it's a sign of her submission to His authority. But to say that you believe in Jesus, that you love and follow Jesus. And to disobey this simple command, i got to be really blunt with you, is like trying to use Jesus for a booty call. You can't be committed to Christ and to continue to willingly disobey Him. Those who repented of their sins and believed in Jesus display this new heart and this new attitude towards Jesus by being baptized. And the promise that comes from this is that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now again, keep in mind, the Holy Spirit's already been doing work, but what he's promising here is that the Holy Spirit will dwell within you, convicting you of sin, leading you in righteousness according to God's word, granting you 24-7 access to God, and empowering you for mission. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Verse 39 for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. It's for everyone. Those who baptize infants, they want to try to leapfrog back into the Old Testament and connect this to God's promises of blessing to his people, which they call the covenant of grace. And I do believe it's connected to these Old Testament promises. But that's not what Peter and Luke are saying. You see, context is king here, guys. The promise is to repent and believe and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Right? The promise is the Holy Spirit himself who is called the promise in chapter 1, verse 4, and again in verse 8. Or in Luke chapter 24, verse 9. And so the command to be baptized and receive the indwelling Holy Spirit is not for babies, but for everyone who, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and in response to the call of God, have repented and believed. Now friends, there's a whole bunch more that I could say about this. I could talk all day about baptism. But that's not the point of this text, and so I'm going to move on. But the distinguishing mark of the Word of God and Spirit here is repentance and faith that goes public. It is evident that this person repents, and it is evident that this person believes. This person wants the world to know that he identifies with Jesus through baptism, and this person wants to follow him. That kind of person clearly displays that she desires to obey God's word and that she has received the gift of the Spirit. And so the first distinguishing mark of the word and spirit is a deep conviction of sin. The second is repentance and faith. And the third distinguishing mark of the word and spirit is a commitment to walk in obedience. Now, 
one of the most essential truths that we can ever grasp is that salvation is all of grace. That it is the work of God through Christ that brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. That He is the one who delivers. He is the one who redeems. He is the one who restores. He is the one who forgives. And we do not add to that. Our good deeds, our works, our obedience, it doesn't save us. But where we go wrong is when we begin to think that our obedience is optional. That, well, you know, I've received forgiveness through Christ, and so it doesn't really matter what I do or how I live. It doesn't matter how I spend my time or my money. It doesn't matter how I treat other people. It doesn't matter what I truly live for. But friends, let me just ask you, from your knowledge of Scripture, your knowledge of the New Testament, do you see that anywhere in the New Testament? You do see it in those who the Apostle John says were among us, but not one of us. Right? Everywhere else, it's being reproved, rebuked, or exhorted to put off the old self that belongs to her former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, let's just be honest with ourselves for a minute. Let's just be honest and say, you know what? What I want, what I really want is I want it all. I want it all, right? I want what Jesus has to offer. I do. But I want what the world has to offer as well. I don't want to completely commit to Christ because that means that I will have to choose Him over all of those other things and I want to choose Jesus and those other things. Or I want my choice of Jesus to be past tense. I want it to be a thing that happened in the past which will now enable me and allow me to choose all the other stuff that I want to choose in addition to Him. And not feel bad about it. I want Jesus as my insurance policy so that I can live how I want and not have to pay for my mistakes. But verse 40 says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, friends, this is a very important verse, not because it gives me a justification for preaching really long sermon, because it does, right? But it reveals to us the ongoing nature of the Christian life. The truth is we need many other words to walk in obedience. The truth is we need continual exhortation to turn away from our sin and in faith to follow Jesus. The truth is we need ongoing conviction and ongoing repentance and faith. It's not a one-time deal. We need that gospel imperative over and over and over and over again. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And friends, though it is a passive command, he's saying be saved. That doesn't mean that you are passive, that you're just to stand there and wait for God to save you. He says, be saved. And that's not a one-time deal. It's ongoing because of the word generation. 
Okay, he, he's not talking about a race or a family or simply your current local contemporaries. That if you just get outside of that local contemporary, you're fine. Because if Peter was saying that, if he was saying a race or a family, Peter would be anti-Semitic, which is ironic because Peter's a Jew. Now he's talking about a culture. He's talking about a period of time. Friends, how long is a generation? It's your lifetime. Your generation is your lifetime. And he says, save yourself from this crooked generation. And so for the rest of our lives, we are to be saved from this crooked generation. They are crooked, they are twisted, they are wicked, they are evil because they have strayed. They have deviated from God's good, right, straight, and holy path. And again, he's saying this not to the most immoral, not to the most reprehensible people imaginable, but he's saying this to devoutly religious people. That you too have gone astray. And so this call to salvation is a call to daily and continually save yourself from this crooked generation. And so friends, we can't do that if we live and we act and we look just like the world. We are to be saved from out of this crooked generation. Not to be saved while immersing ourselves in it. This is not going to happen if we just stand idly by, taking in everything that this world has to offer. It takes resolve. A word-affirming, word-seeking, spirit-empowered commitment to walk in obedience to Christ. And friends, we're so quick to commit to spending hours watching movies or, or television, to go shopping, to surf the internet, or to stand out in the freezing cold at every home game of your favorite losing team. But ask me to commit to spending just 15 minutes a day seeking God and His Word and in prayer, to commit myself to Christ's body, the church, God's means of helping me to become more like Jesus, helping us all to become more like Jesus. Quite honestly, to commit to showing up on time or heaven forbid, even early as a means of giving grace to others. No way. There's too much fun to be had. There are too many things to enjoy, too many distractions in the world, too many worldly loves to delight in. I've got my generation to keep up with. But friends, don't be deceived. Because what is crooked cannot and will not be made straight. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is one of the biggest reasons why we struggle with doubt. Rather than committing ourselves to what Christ has clearly called us to do in order that once we step in obedience, once we make the commitment to walk in obedience, we then see the fruit of that 
action. We see its effect. We see over time what it's doing in our hearts and in our lives. What we want to do is we want to stand still. We don't want to do anything. We want to give ourselves over to the world until God proves to us that all of this change is going to happen and then we step into the fruit. But that is not the way it works. Friends, that's not faith. Faith is trust that commits to walk in obedience. Not perfectly, but in conviction and in repentance and faith. And again, this is going to require greater intimacy with God than with our sin. And By God's grace, we see in verse 41 that many did. So those who received His word that is, the word of God, were baptized, and there were added that day by the Holy Spirit about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls received the word. 3,000 souls received the gift of the Spirit. 3,000 souls were added that day to the church. 3,000 souls committed themselves to walk in obedience to Christ. And the effect of the word and the Spirit were evident. So friends, what about you? I mean, what, are, what are some ways that you know that you need to commit to Christ? What are some areas in your life where maybe you're now experiencing conviction of sin and you are finding yourself drawn with a desire to repent and believe? Friends, God does not call us to stop at a mere desire. He calls us to commit. So how is He calling you to walk in obedience? Friends, recognize that this is a good thing. That this is a gift from the Lord to be thankful for. Conviction of sin is a gift. Repentance and faith are gifts. This commitment that He calls us to walk in obedience is a gift for our good. It's the effect of the Word and the Spirit in our lives. It's how we know that all this is true. Receiving the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit results in conviction, in repentance, and a commitment to walk in obedience. And so let's pray that the Lord would do that in our hearts. Bow your heads with me.